0: The following recording is from Mind the Hype. Is meditation everything it's been promised to be? The event was held as part of Psych Talks, the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences forum for ideas and discussion on Tuesday, the 21st of May, 2019. You're about to hear a panel discussion all about mindfulness. Moderated by ABC Radio host Hilary Harper, and featuring a film director, a psychologist and neuroscientist, a mindfulness teacher, and a Buddhist monk.
1: My name is Sarah Wilson, and I'm the head of the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And we're delighted to be hosting you here at this event tonight. Wow, what a great location we're in. This is very exciting for the school. We've never hosted an event in a cinema before. It's our first. And it's an extremely popular topic, hence why we've moved here. We've also got some special treats for you. You're going to see some previews on this enormous screen. When we lecture, we have a screen behind us, but it's never quite this big. (laughs) It's, it's, It's mega. And you're going to hear from a wonderful panel of experts with very diverse backgrounds and experience in the topic of mindfulness. And we've selected this diverse panel because the idea is to bring a range of different perspectives or views to bear on this important topic, which we believe has far-reaching implications for society as a whole, particularly when we think about the rising levels of mental health difficulties in the community and the importance that mindfulness offers as a non-invasive, powerful treatment technique. And this is particularly salient, I think, given that currently there is virtually no government medical research funding into mindfulness research. So this means we currently have a situation in the community where even the definition of mindfulness and its practice is unclear. And this has serious implications for us. Because without a clear definition, vastly different treatments and practices can be put forward to the public, to consumers as equally valid. Research from one study can be wrongfully used to make claims about the benefits of another and that makes it hard for people within the community to discern between what might be evidence-based or best practice in this field. So our school is committed to understanding the science of mindfulness and we're incredibly fortunate in our school to have recently Um, acquired one of the world leading experts in mindfulness and meditation research, Dr. Nicholas Van Dam, who's the brains behind this tonight. Now, Dr. Van Dam is actually at the forefront of mindfulness research. He's a real trailblazer. And he's spent many years devoting time to critically evaluating the practice and improving the methodology of mindfulness research. And he's doing this in order to understand and extricate the benefits of this ancient practice for the modern world in which we live. So I'm sure you're really going to enjoy hearing from him and our other wonderful panel of guests in what I'm sure is going to be a very fascinating discussion tonight. But before you meet Nicholas and our other guests, I'm very excited to extend a very warm welcome to Hilary Harper. It's a special treat to have Hilary here. She's our MC and she's going to take over proceedings. She's also had an incredibly impressive career and I'm sure is well known to most of you, particularly for her highly engaging work as a morning radio presenter for the ABC as the host of Life Matters. So please join with me to welcome Hillary. Thank
2: you, Sarah. No pressure then to be engaging, good. Welcome to this Psych Talks event. And it's really lovely to see so many people here tonight because I I feel like we see meditation and mindfulness everywhere. Classrooms, boardrooms, hospitals, prisons. Can it really be that great? Are you gonna become this serene new person if we just sprinkle a bit of mindfulness on you and make you jump up and down? We're gonna investigate tonight and we will have a chunk of time at the end for questions as well. So we've got some heavy hitters, as Sarah mentioned here tonight, to help us explore these ideas. Uh, Dr Nicholas Van Dam is a senior lecturer in the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences. He's adjunct assistant professor in psychiatry at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. And he did his PhD on the utility of mindfulness-based interventions for anxiety and depression doesn't get more sciencey than that. Shannon Harvey, at the end, is a journalist and an award-winning filmmaker and director, and she has her own lived experience of chronic pain. So she decided to meditate every day for a year and see if it helped. So we'll see the, the fruits of some of her labours very soon up on this screen. Hojan Futun is a healthcare chaplaincy coordinator and a uh, prison chaplaincy coordinator for the Buddhist Council of Victoria. He's been studying Buddhism for 28 years and has been a monk for 10 years. So he can tell us how mindfulness works uh, for real people in very challenging situations. And Josie Jimenez is a certified mindfulness practitioner She studied at UCLA, she has a master's degree in human development, and she's trained in Stanford University's compassion cultivation training. Let's start, though, with a preview of Shannon's film. It's called My Year of Living Mindfully.
0: The trailer that was shown was from a film called My Year of Living Mindfully, directed by Shannon Harvey, which is set to be released later this year. The documentary depicts a stressed-out, overburdened journalist embarking on a year-long self-experiment to find out if meditation really can revolutionise her health and happiness, or if it's just another oversold, overhyped self-help fad. There is no doubt,
3: right now in this moment, there is a major global mental health crisis.
4: But it's a little like, uh, you know, a boiling frog who doesn't notice the temperature is getting higher
5: and higher. Why do you think that mindfulness has taken off? Do you think that there's this kind of hunger for it?
6: I think there's more than a hunger for this. Uh, as John kabat I think, has said, people are dying for this.
2: Let's start with a little bit of definition bingo, shall we? <laughs> Is there a working definition? Nicholas, if you could perhaps kick it off. Is is mindfulness the same thing as meditation? Are many of us on the same page when we talk about mindfulness?
6: Mindfulness and meditation are not the same thing. A lot of people think they're similar, that, that they're related. And, and in some cases they are. Uh, so when people are talking about mindfulness meditation, they're talking about a very particular type of meditation. Um, the most common or popular definition that gets used is one by Jon Kabat-Zinn. Um, so paying attention you know, uh, in the moment in a particular way, on purpose, non-judgmentally. Um, and so that's what a lot of people think that mindfulness is or that's sort of how they kind of think of this practice or process. Um, but we really, we're not clear um, either you know, among the Buddhist community, among Buddhist scholars, religious scholars, when we talk about mindfulness or when we talk about meditation, uh, we're not talking about a lot of very different things, different states, um, traits, practices. So it, it, it's all over the place. Um, we, we like to think we're kind of talking about the same thing and we use the term, we, we talk about mindfulness, and we've even done this already several times tonight where we said mindfulness and Hoi Jun's going to tell us about mindfulness, where he's probably going to say, he'll tell you about meditation. Um, so... That that's a great example of sort of how these terms sort of get conflated and confused.
2: Hojun, could you tell us a little bit about the tradition in Buddhism and and what you mean when you talk about mindfulness?
3: I guess one of the major points for us is uh, mindfulness does not stand apart on its own um, as a as a technique. Uh, really, when the Buddha was sort of describing uh, mindfulness as part of the eightfold path, which is part of the four noble truths, what he was referring to is is this um, sort of practice that went aligned with a number of other different practices at the same time, too, and it was about, in part, present mindful uh, awareness of what actually is happening to you, what's, and you can look at it, body scanning as one part, but you can look at breath as another part of it. So even within Buddhism, to define mindfulness, it also differs across the different traditions. So as Nicholas says, we don't even have a straight answer some of the times. You know, we sort of have to look at the audience and sort of say, well, are you this much on this side of the traditions? Are you this much on that side of the And I'll answer according to that more so than try to actually give you a straight answer because it's almost impossible to do that. But I guess what it really comes down to is it's, for us, when we talk about meditation, mindfulness is one side of the coin, concentration being the other side of the coin too. Um, how that mindfulness is applied will vary across traditions.
2: Can you extricate it from a religious and
3: spiritual sensibility? I think you, you probably can, but you lose the depth and richness and the support that goes along with it. And I think one of the important things too is to look at what was the context in which it was originally created and applied. Um, especially in um, this sort of setting where I'm at at the present moment, you know, uh, mindfulness was not um, a sort of a psychological or, or medical modality. Um, it was one to explore one's own understanding of themselves and uh, of uh, the reality in which they find themselves in. So it wasn't about mental health, it wasn't about physical health, it wasn't about pain avoidance or anything like that. And so. Um, I struggle sometimes when sort of sitting in conferences where that sometimes seems to be the focus. I am like well, that's not what was taught from our perspective.
2: Well I guess we've seen that with yoga too haven't we? It came out of a particular tradition and just exploded and now it's everywhere and you can get 14 different types of it and you get sweat during it and all kinds of things. Josie if I could turn to you, what do people want from you as a mindfulness teacher and facilitator when they come to you and ask you to run a session? What are they hoping for?
4: First of all um Very honored to be here with this panel and and everyone here. Thank you for your time and and for being here, it really matters. I think people come for different reasons. I really enjoy, for instance, students, because um, students are asking the big questions. Who am I? What the hell am I doing? Is is this what I really wanna do for the rest of my life? And maybe not, and how am I gonna tell my parents? They're invested all this, they have all these hopes, and it turns out this is not what I want to do. This is not where my heart is. And corporations have a very different different intention and it gets tricky there. Because in many instances, it's about productivity. It's about performance. It's about making sure that my team uh, can work in this very competitive, sometimes shaming, toxic culture Without complaining too much. Does it ever
2: backfire when a business runs a session and they go, Great, we've given everyone mindfulness training, and everyone goes, I hate it here and I'm leaving?
4: I think it takes a little time to get that. I think most corporations, um, and I was discussing this with Nicholas before we, we sat here, is that it's, it's very interesting how corporations want to integrate the practice. It's usually they care about the well being of their team. However, it's during lunchtime, which I always let them know, look, you're sending a message by making this available during lunchtime. It's the same at unis, by the way, which is tragic. If students want to practice, it's during lunchtime. In other words, this really is not that important. I'm not that invested. I just want you to keep going. And people, I think
2: sometimes see it as a tool, don't they? As a way to get more out of someone doing a particular thing by applying mindfulness. Can it work that way
4: though? I think it can. And that's the danger. And I think this is where where the conversation gets tricky. Because in my view, the practice, it's about getting to know myself. And that's scary. So in other words, in the practice, we cultivate courage to go there where it's uncomfortable.
2: And we're going to talk uh, further on in this session about the individual focus versus a more collective outlook. Shannon, I'd like to come to you and your process, this massive filmic experiment where you decided to meditate every day for a year and see what effect it had on your body and your brain. And you did a lot of thinking about definitions. Can you tell us where you began and, and what you moved through to your final understanding of mindfulness?
5: Sure. I set out to make a film and somebody far more eloquent than I said, you wanted to make a film that was basically supersize me for the enlightened. <laughs> and I, I started, my, posi- my starting position was as a believer. And um, I'd seen all the evidence, I'm a health journalist by training, I was, I was sure this was going to work. And the segment that you just saw in the film was when I, my bubble was burst. <laughs> Thanks, Nicholas. <laughs> um, and, and when that happened, I started questioning everything, including what on earth is mindfulness. And so I, I would be the classic person who would just quote whatever the expert said, um, the awareness that arises by paying attention non-judgmentally, moment by moment by moment. That's one of the more famous definitions by John Kabat-Zinn and is still used in many of the academic papers. And, and as I got deeper and deeper into the research project, I started thinking about my own definition and started sort of feeling less dependent on experts. In some ways, I became an expert on my own first-person experience. And so I can tell you what my definition is. Mindfulness is learning to hear myself think. And, and I use the word hear not as like a, um, You know, often I think that when we're listening to people, we're listening just so that we can say something in response. I mean hearing in that true kind of embodiment, embodying your present experience. Um, And I put that to um, a scientist recently and he quite liked it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I found it really interesting that you've written elsewhere that um, John Kabat-Zinn went on to say it's an operational definition because when you put it into operation, mindfulness arises within you. You don't need to understand it. Isn't that a worry that we might not understand the processes that are at work on us?
5: I'm going to sideball that to Nicholas on that. Is
2: you it, said before you were a master at this. Yeah. It's true.
5: <laughs> well, he's, I mean, he's so qualified to answer a question like that. No.. <laughs> oh.
6: So can you repeat the question?
2: <laughs> John Kavatzin was saying it's it's an operational definition. It just arises within you, and you don't need to understand it. I find that a bit worrying that we might not understand these processes that are at work on our thinking processes.
6: I, th- I mean, I think what John is trying to say, or what he was possibly trying to say, was just do it, um, and that you know once you start to do it, you'll it'll it'll make sense. You'll you'll come to know it. So I think that's the spirit of what he was saying. I do think there there's a bit of blind faith in that. There's a bit of, you know, trust me, we know what we're doing. And um, not everybody's doing the same thing. And certainly not all of us that are teaching these things and uh, that are looking at these things necessarily know what we're doing. Um, Not all of us understand our own experiences all that well, let alone the experiences of others. So I do think there's there's a big risk in just saying, you don't really have to understand it. You don't really have to know what you're getting into. You just have to sort of show up and be present. Um, And is that risk because we
2: don't know who's teaching what in when they say they're doing mindfulness it's not just that we don't yet know what the science says but we don't know what other people are telling consumers that they might be getting
6: yeah so that i think that's that's one major risk is that you know th- it, there's uh, a lack of clarity around who's doing it and what they're doing and how they're responding to it the other issue i think is sort of what you know we say just show up and be present for what comes up a lot of people don't anticipate what will come up um and people spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy trying to avoid the things they probably need to pay the most attention to. And when you sit quietly in a room by yourself doing nothing other than looking at your thoughts and your feelings, all of that stuff that you don't want to look at comes up. And so if you don't have any idea what you're going to do with that, uh, if you don't have a teacher or someone to talk to about what happens when that stuff comes flooding through, um, it can go horribly wrong.
2: So should there be a health warning on meditation sessions? You know, just just be aware this stuff might come up for you. You might need some help.
6: I think people that that do it well. I think people that do it authentically are, are have that candid conversation with people that you know. Look, this is this is not. Uh, yeah, I mean, even Kabat-Zinn said it's it's simple but not easy. Um, and there are the, 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 by the book the the prescriptions for how MBSR, so mindfulness based stress reduction which is sort of the original kind of Western program for mindfulness meditation, even that sort of says that anybody with sort of a history of emotional distress or psychiatric problems, it's not, this is not really for them. Um, So it's kind of already there to some extent. and, And I think a lot of people do you provide that warning. Uh, authentic teachers, good teachers will often have this discussion with people before they sort of get in depth into the practice. Like, you know, are you really ready for this? These are some of the things that can come up. But it's not there in a lot of the practices. It's not there in the, necessarily the books. It's not there in the apps.
2: Well, and what you say, an authentic teacher, what makes an authentic teacher or a good teacher? And I don't know if, Josie, you want to leap in here as well.
6: Yeah, so I mean, uh, it, it, it's very complicated. I think you know what, what is authentic. I think I, you know, my, to me, it's sort of just somebody who's gone to the effort of trying to understand themselves and and put in the time, sort of trying to learn the techniques uh, and trying to learn what will come up. And someone who knows their knows the traditions, knows where it comes from, but also who knows their own limits, um, who knows when you know the the what they're teaching and who they're teaching to um, is sort of outside of their capacity uh, and when they sort of have to pass off to someone else.
3: I'm going to jump in if that's okay. Great. The question had a very, for me, a sense of a western bias where uh, it's, it's almost that prove it to me to be true and then I'll look at it. And in, in the east especially, when you, when you go off and you train in the east, that's not the case. It's a case of do it. And if you do it, the wisdom comes from the practice. The understanding comes from the practice. If I try to tell you what that wisdom and understanding is going to be now, you'll dismiss it, you won't, actually, won't have value for you because you've not mined for it yourself. So that's a, one part of it, is especially. Um, and even to the point where, uh, in my own training, uh, we would have, uh, I trained in Japan, and uh, we would have people come um, for their first time meditation. We gave them three instructions. Keep your back straight, breathe naturally, don't use the mind, off you go. And that was, you know, there were instructions to actually how to engage in practice. Um, and so it really is a case of just open yourself up, because the answers that you're seeking are actually within you and they will come if you engage in the practice wholeheartedly.
2: But does this is this where it comes back to having a teacher who knows what they're doing? Because for some people it might be too late if they're going to have a psychotic event or re-access some trauma and have a terrible time meditating. How do we ensure that it's safe for them? And I
3: think Nicholas sort of touched on that point too because we have to understand what is this practice about and who is it for? A lot of times people sort of think that you might sort of need to have, you know, um, massive trauma or something like that in order to really gain benefit of the practice. But we actually look sometimes at the historical uh, stories about it. The Buddha himself practically had no trauma. He was raised, you know, away from everything, from old age, sickness, you know, he had this, you know, wonderful, perfect, almost like a healthy ego expression. That's where he launched into things. And so we're we're very mindful of the fact that, you know, this this isn't a cure-all. It really isn't. And um, I'm particularly aware of it because we've actually had in one of my um, meditation groups experiences the loss of someone who thought that it was going to help them and committed suicide as a result. So um, we're very, very mindful these days uh, in meditation groups that we do have this, all right, let us know who you are so we can make sure that this is not going to be something that's going to further hurt you, you know, down the track. We want to make sure that um, we're taken care of you, and we know we have a responsibility towards you. Um, and we, you know, we're just looking out for that, that part of you as well.
2: I found something that you wrote very interesting, Shannon, because um, I think it speaks to the expectations sometimes people have of what mindfulness will do for them. When you had started the experiment, you'd been meditating every day for a particular period of time, what did you discover?
5: That I wasn't any happier. <laughs> and that was a pretty surprising truth. I think that there's a, a big wellness market um, that likes to sell us this idea that all we need to do is sit and contemplate our inner thoughts, and that is the path to everlasting peace and happiness. And at that point, that was about halfway through the project, I realised that I wasn't being taught by my teachers about how to get happier. I was learning how to deal with all the unpleasant things in my life. And the word that I use to describe that discomfortable. I was learning for the first time in my life how to be comfortable with discomfort and I asked some of the researchers who I was interviewing along the way whether they felt that perhaps one of the big issues that we've got in terms of the mental health epidemic is that nobody is teaching us how to suffer anymore and and instead we're told to take pills or we're told to think positive thoughts or we're told that suffering is something that is wrong instead of something that is part of being alive and being a human being. And so it was a really profound thing for me to learn to turn towards all the unpleasant experiences. Um, And that was significant in helping me with my insomnia, just monumental, and also my chronic pain as well.
2: Can I just quickly get a comment from you, Hojun, because I understand that Buddhism has a lot to say about suffering. Does it tally with what Shannon's talking
3: about? Oh, absolutely. She um, practically nailed it on the head. The Buddha sort of you know, basically turned around and said, he taught two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And it's not that pain and suffering are the same thing, they're not. Pain is the, the mental anguish that we experience, sorry, suffering is the mental anguish we experience when we are going through pain. So there are two different elements. And, and pain uh, is, is one of those four great sufferings as part of birth, old age, sickness and death. It's, it's an, a reality of life. And um, as Shannon was basically saying, what she's been taught is what you know, Buddhism teaches, that you are going to experience discomfort, you are going to experience annoyance, you're going to experience loss, you're going to experience anguish, pain, all of this. But if you have the right practice in place, you can actually begin to lessen the suffering of all of these. You will still experience it, but you won't double up on that to a certain extent. I'll give a, a brief, very, very brief example of this. Uh, working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, they have memorial services once every three months. for The families of patients who have passed away within that three-month period. And they do a brilliant job at Royal Melbourne of actually explaining grief and you, how people cycle through grief differently for everybody else. It's not a cookie-cutter pattern. And um, we had a gentleman come up to me at one point afterwards um, talking about how relieved he felt because prior to coming to the service, um, he was experiencing tremendous guilt that he wasn't suffering the loss of his wife the way he thought he should have been suffering based on society's concepts about it. So here he is going through the pain of loss, and here he is doubling up on that through the suffering because he doesn't understand you know, the true nature of those sorts of things. And so this is where meditation really comes in, to actually alleviate that suffering. You'll still experience the pain of loss, but you'll alleviate the suffering that goes with it.
2: And Shannon, you started to see some changes, not happy, chirpy, la-la, but a different way of sitting with what was going on. What physical changes did you find, or is that a spoiler
5: for the film? <laughs> I'm not going to give away the scientific results. You'll have to wait till the film's released for that. <laughs> but um, I haven't had insomnia. I can't remember the last time I had insomnia, so that was a significant improvement. And, and, and I am really here this discussion about not wanting to say that Mindfulness is a cure-all for everybody. But for me, learning to um, hear myself think and capture the mental habits, the habit loops that were going in my mind that would keep me up at night, um, was just utterly profound. And the other significant thing is, is my chronic pain and my relationship to my chronic pain. Like, it, it has been months and months and months since i felt bothered by pain, which is extraordinary. Really, I mean, that's all you want, isn't it, really, when, you, when you're suffering, when you're in pain. Yeah. I, I was struck by
2: one of the things that you wrote on your blog. With the help of good teachers, depressed people can recognise their despondency as something separate from themselves. Addicts can develop distance between cravings and behaviour, and chronic pain sufferers can disconnect their pain from its emotional overlay. But one scientific review has said it was moderately effective at best for anxiety, depression and pain. Are there some irresponsible claims being made that mindfulness alone or meditation alone could help people in these pretty
5: extreme situations? Absolutely. And um, Willoughby Britton is uh, really the leading researcher on this at the moment and she's increasingly doing some fantastic research on this. We, We really, I think, really what we're getting at here is that we have got something that is so monumentally promising. And we, it's really easy to get excited about the promise of something, especially when we're in the midst of epidemics of mental health and chronic health, mental illness and chronic health. And so we really need something. We're crying out for something. And so it is so easy to get carried away and overpromise. Um, but at the same time, the, the real takeaway message for me, on, with my scientific lens on and my journalism lens on is that we need really good research and we really need to start getting into the nitty gritty of the who, the when, the why and the how. Um, and particularly what I'm interested in is is the dose question. It's, you know, I, I really do think, without trying to oversell this, and I'm really mindful of who I'm sitting with here <laughs> when I say this, <laughs> but I really do think that there is so much promise in this and I I can see a time where mindfulness is something that is taught to people as a matter of course. But, but there are still so many outstanding questions before we can do that.
2: Well, let's drill down into that a little bit. Nicholas, tell us a bit about the current state of research. Are there areas that mindfulness shows particular promise and areas where we just can't follow up any of those claims?
6: Yeah, I think, um, so certainly in, in areas of anxiety, depression, stress, uh, to some extent pain, um, there, there's reasonable evidence that it works there Um, so and and, uh, average effect sizes you know how well it works are moderate so um, on average in these studies the you know people respond sort of I often say you know it's uh, it's a rule of have so half of the people respond half of the time with the, at about you know half of their symptoms reduced, um, and so that that's kind of what we see. Um, there are other areas um, where it may be promising, but it's early days. So things like post-traumatic stress disorder, um, things like. Um, schizophrenia or psychosis. People are really wanting to apply it there, um, but it's still very early, and it's still, um, it still remains sort of an open question as to whether and how it can be applied in those contexts in a way that sort of doesn't uh, cause more harm than, than it does provide help.
2: Are they wanting to apply it partly because it's super cheap?
6: Um, possibly. Um, I think, you know, so a, a lot of the way that this is, is taught is usually in the context of groups and, and there's a very good reason for that. Uh, and that's something, you know, we can, we can talk about in more detail later. Um, but it, it is certainly, um, it is cheaper than, than one-on-one individual sort of psychotherapy. Um, it's not necessarily cheaper than pills. Um, although, you know, the reality sort of in the long run is that, you know, if you look at sort of the economics, that pills are usually cheaper. Um, it's it's a lot easier for an insurance company or for a healthcare provider to prescribe pills and ignore the person than actually deal with them on a regular basis and sort of try to help them through it. Um, so yeah, that, you know, I, I don't, I, it isn't actually cheaper, even though it might seem like it would be.
2: Is, uh, is one of the problems with the current state of research how you accurately measure an effect that mindfulness has? If, given that we don't have a definition?
6: Yeah, so a lot, a lot of the interventions that are out there, um, so barring some of the earliest ones that in, in the West that sort of have been adopted in a very structured way, so mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which have very sort of um, systematic, you know, this is exactly what happens in each of the sessions over over a period of 8 to 12 weeks. A lot of the newer ones, which were, were really great at inventing new interventions. Uh, There's been some studies showing that, you know, uh, some ridiculous proportion of our research is actually just on us creating new interventions rather than testing the ones that we already have. So we're sort of reinventing the wheel when we haven't even really tested out the wheel. So I think that that's one thing. But so one of the things is that um, when people when people invent a mindfulness intervention or a mindfulness-based intervention, one of the things they often think is, well, how do I figure out whether or not it's, it's mindful? And so we kind of in, engage in, in, in scientific research in this circular enterprise where people have come up with things they think is what mindfulness is. So they might use the classic habits zinn definition, and then they say, okay, well, have I taught people to be aware? Have I taught people to be present? Have I taught people to be nonjudgmental? And what we'll often do is just ask them before and after are you more or less mindful? And people pay lots of money to do these things. Researchers, clinicians feel very invested in it working. And so there's a lot of pressure on the people to say, yeah, I think I'm more mindful. I've just spent $1,000 in eight weeks and you know, two hours a day doing this practice. I sure hope that I'm more mindful. So, um, so is it
2: th- then pretty exciting that Shannon's putting herself in an MRI machine <laughs> and getting some data?
6: Well, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> what we see in the brain doesn't necessarily reflect sort of what happens in behavior. And I think something that came up in the Catalyst episode that, that was on mindfulness that was not that long ago um, was that some of what changes, some of the things that happens in these processes uh, of meditation and mindfulness are not necessarily things that we know how to measure scientifically quite yet. We're trying and we're getting there, um, but things like how uh, meditation and mindfulness impacts the person in their world Right, and so to, to ask the people around them, is this person any nicer? Is this person any different? Are they behaving differently? We often don't do that as scientists. We often sort of say, well, let's put them in an MRI scanner. Um, even though that actually costs a lot more, it, it seems more logical, I guess, for us scientists to say, well, let's, let's just look at their brain or their blood. We can get a graph. Um, <laughs> but the reality sort of is, you know, the way that these practices sort of were designed uh, and where they're really probably having the strongest influence sort of probably most quickly might be in the world, might be in the context and the, how the person goes about their day-to-day life, how they interact with their own experiences. And, and some of that's just hard to capture with our traditional measures.
2: Well, Josie, you operated the world. People come to you from the world and ask you to help them learn how to be mindful. And I noticed that in your study, you studied under neuroscientists, but also um, contemplative practitioners. And I'm wondering if, like Hojun mentioned before, they told you about different approaches. Was it kind of two very different streams or were there commonalities between those two uh, places that you
4: studied? I think going back to kind of the qualities of the teacher, I think what matters is who they are, more than what they say. So teacher, regardless of the tradition or the secular, in my view, what matters is who they are. So for instance, do they embody humility? When they're with you, Do they make you feel seen, like they're really there with you, that they care about you generally, not because they're going to get something out of you, but because they actually care. They embody courage. They invite you to think for yourself, to find your own voice. And they invite you to test them, to provoke them. And to me, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It matters who you are when you're in relationship with yourself and with your relationship with others. But it's tricky, isn't it, in, in a
2: capitalist economic system because people, I guess, make a judgment about who their teacher is based on their website or what their friends have told them or factors other than what the teacher, who they are. How do you make mindfulness work in a context like that? How do you make sure you're, you're teaching people the authentic thing and that they're getting what they should be getting out of it?
4: That's very hard. That's a really good question. And I don't know. I'm in it. I'm part of this capitalistic world. And it's ingrained in me. It's in my DNA. However, my practice allows me to kind of create a little space and question my beliefs, my conditioning, And my invitation to to others is to do your homework before you open your mind and your heart, which is precious. There's nothing more precious in this world than your mind and your heart. Do your homework. Who is this person? What's the lineage of their teaching? Who are their teachers? Either in a university or from the tradition. Are there any scandals? Are they in love with themselves? That's a red flag. If they can't stop talking about themselves, keep looking.
6: Can I just say one thing about that? Because I, I actually want to channel something that Josie and I have talked about in the past, and she said before, uh, in terms of websites and what people look. It, one, one, people don't have a lot of time, space, attention. Everybody knows that you know you've you've got people's attention for a very very short period of time. You have to make an Im- impression quickly. So. What's, what's not there and what is there, and I think that's really telling. So when you go to look at a teacher, you go to look at somebody who's, you want to learn mindfulness from, you know, what, what are they telling you and what are they not telling you? So if the first thing on there is you know, um, you know, I, I studied with the Dalai Lama, um, you know, did they really? Like, did, you know, were they at the back of the room, you know, in Emory and it was, you know, just a seminar and he happened to be in town while they were reading a book that he wrote and, you know, they were being taught by someone who, you know, kind of might have known somebody that worked with him, you know. So, it, and then what, what are they not telling you? You know, what, as Josie said, you know, what are the scandals that they're not telling you about? Uh, is, are there massive omissions in terms of what their education was? And, and I think that, so what's there and what's not there sort of should, are equally important.
2: Well, and also, if you, if you could be getting anything from a little nap to a complete
4: personality
2: restructure, how practical is informed consent?
4: That's huge. And most of us really don't know what we're getting into because in order to sell a product or sell myself, I have to kind of know what you're up to and what your priorities are. And if you're in the marketplace, I become a product So then I need to market myself in a way that makes you want to call me and not the competition, so that I'm constantly kind of editing myself and and making sure that the language is appropriate for you. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to cross, you know, burn any bridges. This might be my big opportunity. I might get big league, and this is what I think in, in my view, the value of ethics. A very clear um, code of ethics. Moral integrity, which I struggle with. And, and I think that's kind of the struggle in this culture secular world. Is, is it about me? Am I making about me? Am I making about this product? Am I making about my group? Or I said, because I'm in the service of others. I want to serve others.
2: Let's talk about that collective focus. I'm wondering, because I think a lot of people in the West think mindfulness can help me. It is an internal thing, and it's just about making my life better. What is it in Buddhism? Is it Does it have a more, an applicability in a wider sense, a collective sense?
3: It's a bit of a, a tricky question to answer, because um, in order for me to actually reference that, um, I'm coming back to the idea that uh, mindfulness is one of the eight parts of the Noble Eightfold Path, which includes a morality element to it. And um, when morality is uh, discussed within Buddhism, it's not uh, in relation to appeasing uh, a deity, because Buddhism is a non-theistic tradition. What we're really looking at is we are trying to ensure that we're moving within harmony within our world, within our community, because we understand the hindrances to practice. And some of these hindrances have to deal with guilt, uh, ill will, remorse, which come about from when we actually break what we consider to be the moral precepts of our society. So the morality that exists within um, Buddhism and its meditation is to enhance the meditation. So in a way it's kind of weird in the sense that I'm, I am actually working for my benefit to actually truly understand who I am, but in order to do that properly I also need to actually be kind to you and to everybody else and to make sure that I'm actually moving well within this society. Otherwise, I'm impacting negatively on my practice.
2: So there's less of a division between the idea of something being internal and
3: collective. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's just right on them there together.
2: Shannon, I want to talk to you about uh, when you visited that massive, heartbreaking refugee camp and talked to people there about the uses of mindfulness for them. And I was so struck by what the man in the trailer said about it might be luxury for you, it's a medicine for me. Can you tell us? how that went down
5: yes so um about three quarters of the way through my year of living mindfully it became very apparent that and this is a slight spoiler alert but that personally i no longer needed the scientific results in order to validate whether or not i should keep meditating i knew that meditation worked for me and That doesn't really make a very good film for a start (laughs) because there's not really a good climax there. But primarily what I soon realised, particularly as part of the project, I did a 10-day silent retreat, which is, apart from becoming a mother, is the most profound thing that I've ever done in my life. It was like something that I had been searching for, I finally understood and I, I finally saw... And without without um, overselling it again, but it was a taste of inner peace, of real inner peace, on this ten-day silent retreat. And and I I wondered, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a really fortunate person. I'm I'm lucky that I've been given an education. I live in a peaceful country, and my problems were really hashtag first world, <laughs> like. So it's not really news. It's not really a good, you know, interesting story that a white woman who's, you know, got a master's degree in journalism and lives on the northern beaches in Sydney meditates and finds inner peace. It's like, yeah, big deal. <laughs> like, Really, when we're in the midst of a global mental health epidemic. And so I became quite aware of the fact that um, in other parts of the world, we are in the midst of a humanitarian crisis in which more people have been displaced than um, in World War Two, And I began to realise that whilst those people are being tended to in, um, in a very physical sense, in that there are refugee camps being put up, there, are, um, f- there is food being, being distributed, um, there is nothing there for mental health, let alone anything that is based in evidence. You know, there are lots of kind-hearted people going over there doing wonderful things, um, but evidence-based mental health support? Virtually zero, until I discovered that there were a couple of groups doing mindfulness. And what excited me about this is that mindfulness, and and the others will talk about this, um, I'm sure, but mindfulness is the only thing at our disposal that is disseminable in in large groups, that doesn't require one-on-one intensive psychotherapy and has this growing evidence base. So it's affordable, really. But my big question was, like these people have lost everything. They are living in purgatory. There is no home for them to go home to, even if they wanted to. Like really, can mindfulness help? But the answer was that the refugees who I interviewed were saying all the same things that you hear when when the mindfulness evangelists talk about the effect that it has. Yeah. Oh, June, I
2: wanted to talk to you about uh, taking mindfulness into prisons. What happens when you teach people who are in a prison how to do this
3: thing? I think one of the, um, the biggest comments that comes out of it is, uh, for one thing, Um, the space that they enter into often for them feels like it's the only time they're not actually in a prison. That they are in a space where um, they are wholly and completely accepted for who they are, as they are, and not seen as uh, basically a concept, as in you're a prisoner and therefore every little thing that I think about prisoners is going to be applied to you. That they're actually seen for their um, their own intelligence, their own, uh, their own heart, all of that stuff really comes into it for them. And uh, it's one of the things that happens is they then start to take that away. And it's one of the things they are challenged to actually do within prison as well. Because you really do see in prisons, there's often a case of segregation. There's the prisoners, there's the officers and all this other sort of stuff. And, then, and part of the actual uh, practice within prison is to try and get the people to sit down and say, look, what I really want you to do is I want you to try and drop your concepts. Because these concepts are going to be your actual prison, even when you're in prison and when you're out of prison. You know, I want you to stop seeing the officer as an officer and start to actually interact with this person right in front of you as they are, just as they are, wholeheartedly. And I want you to try and do that with the other guys um, who are also prisoners. And it's a challenging aspect. It's it's super challenging. Um, we sort of talk about outside of prison how this person might be trying to steal my job or, or you know she's stabbing me in the back. And then even today, one guy sort of turned around and said to me. Um, you know, I find it really difficult to prison because I'm hearing these conversations about people who are actually trying to steal my stuff, or here's this person actually talking about how I actually want to stab someone in the back, sort of a thing. It's not this metaphorical expression, it's the reality of it, I'm like, right, okay, let's sit with this, let's see what we could actually come out, you know, in exploring this. So, um, you know, uh, you, you take that and you sort of say to them, look, okay, what I want you to really understand is you were just simply hearing, and I know this hearing, you know, impacted upon the thoughts within your mind, and it generated fear, it generated all these, these actual uh, emotions within it. but I want you to see that the reality was you were just hearing, and the just hearing in and of itself is not something that can actually harm you. So you can only feel the, 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 the fear, the suffering, if you actually accept the concept rather than actually look at what the reality is, so that makes sense. So that's a real challenge in prison, in order to um, look, teach them to look at don't pay attention to so much what is being said, pay attention to what's arising with you as a result of how you know, these thoughts are appearing, these feelings are appearing as a result of what's being said.
2: I feel like I should say, can you do it for the guards? Like, the, you, you're bringing mindfulness to the people who are at the bottom of that massive power imbalance. Do you see a change in the dynamics when you go into prisons time after time and offer this to people?
3: Um, you, you actually do see it from the officers. They, the officers um, see it in the behaviours changing in the prisoners. And they'll often come up to you saying, you're the guy who's been working with such and such. And he yep, says, you know, the change that we've seen in this person has been amazing. Um, but one of the things that I often sort of have to be careful with that is um, prison is, is not a place where you need to be seen as being, having a weakness and there's a balance between change in behaviour and how other people then actually perceive that change in behaviour. For the officers it's great, but for the rest of the general population it may not necessarily be so, and so therefore you're at risk. So there's a real challenge in trying to find balance within prison in in change and safety as well.
2: I'm aware that we've only got a couple more minutes before we throw it open to you. So, marshal your questions. There'll be people with roving microphones ready to take them, get ready to stick your hand up high. I want to finish by asking a couple of quick questions. Um, Josie, do you feel like it would be useful if the mindfulness facilitation sector was more regulated? And if so, how on earth would you do that?
4: I think in the USA... Uh, that's a conversation that's happening right now, and I, I don't know how that would look. Um, however, I want to say something about the refugee example. I think it's dangerous to give those examples because we're bringing mindfulness to the oppressed to make them feel better that they're oppressed, like feel less worse, and it does work. But what about questioning us? Why are we okay with that? To, Separate people, dehumanize humanize people, and out of sight, out of mind. So it's an okay example, but we can do better.
2: Could you have both, though? I mean, there's a there's a, an argument to be made that it's pretty useful to have some people in prison, but while they're in prison, you could help them make some changes in their life. Would well, it be I was to do I both? was
4: speaking about the refugee uh, people, usually that are in prison, and not everybody. That's another question that we need to look at. Um, usually, hopefully, have done something uh, which they knew they're paying the consequences of their actions. However, they still deserve to be treated as human beings. Their dignity, unquestionable, non-negotiable. So I think the practice can allow us, as I said, to ask the big questions, hopefully to challenge the status quo. If that's not happening, I don't know what we're practicing.
2: Well, I am stunned that people aren't you know, hurling money at you, Nicholas Van Dam, to mount enormous research projects. If someone magically did,
6: what would be the first thing that you would do? Um, I think I mean, there's, a, there's a, a lot that needs to be done. I, mean, I think the evidence base is, is OK. It's, you know, it's a start. Um, I think one of the main things that we really need to know um, is what are people doing and which of the things that they're doing actually work in a more objective scientific sense. You know, if, if people are using this for mental health, what are the things that actually can work for mental health? What what do those things look like? Who should be offering them? Um, so those are some much bigger questions that probably need to be done on a large scale in terms of assessing, evaluating what practices are out there, maybe via sort of in, interrogating some of the apps, you know, and, and looking at why people are gravitating towards those. We need to know, um, compared to our first-line treatments the, the things that work how well does does mindfulness based meditation practices stack up um, it seems like they might be somewhat comparable but um, is that true in the long run you know and and if it is true why is it true is it because people like the practice is it because they're willing to keep doing it um, so you know what's the long-term outcome and, uh, and 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 again who should be doing this um, and what's how do we integrate things like apps and workbooks and mm-hmm. Uh, digital things sort of with the the teacher component. So exploring sort of, you know, uh, how do we go about, so what is the efficacy of this and how do we go about doing it? Um, But I think, uh, just to make one more point, I don't, you know, a lot of people sort of, when they think about research in general, think that, you know, well, the way that we would have to go about doing it, we would need five, 10, 15, 20, 25 million dollars. And certainly I think Sarah would be happy and the Dean would be very happy <laughs> with me if, you know, if someone were to give me that amount of money. Um, but the reality I think is a lot of these questions can be answered with small amounts of money. So there's lots of research that needs to be done and um, not all of it costs $5 million. There's a lot that can be done with you know a few thousand dollars.
5: I was in a refugee camp um, where there were 80,000 people. You know, 80,000 people. Most of them suffering with some form of trauma and certainly chronic stress and 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 so you know you look at that big kind of scale and you think, "Oh my God, like how on earth are we going to potentially deliver mental health support for that many people?" and then you see actually mindfulness programs can be delivered in groups and actually you can get these positive effects. but I just 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 in terms of the um, the 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 potential for large-scale research projects, we are really excited about um, the release of this film. We're gonna be doing an impact campaign with it. So um, inviting um, hopefully hundreds of screenings to take place in similar circumstances to this and panel discussions. And on the back of that, we're going to be encouraging people to sign up for their own year of living mindfully. And a bunch of really smart researchers are gonna actually track the effects of of the Year of Living Mindfully. And, And because one of the big problems that I've had now is that I'm a case study of one, and I can tell you exactly what dose I need to meditate at in order for my insomnia not to return. I can tell you the dose. And I can tell you that when I up that dose, I experience additional improvements with my subjective well-being. But wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually work this out on a much larger scale and encourage other people to do that? So wouldn't it be amazing as well if, if the same level of, um, of government funding that went to solving some of the big chronic disease epidemics such as Ebola and malaria were actually also invested into mental health research? How good would that be?
0: New government, new opportunities. <laughs> Let's hear some Q&A from the audience.
1: Thank you very much for that wonderful discussion. My question is to any of the panel members that want to take this. Mental ill health and the level of federal government funding through grants into mental health research, this is not a new topic. This has been increasing levels of um, people experiencing periods of mental ill health. What will it take to make mental health a national political priority? What has to happen? Where is the political will going to come from?
5: I can answer that from a journalist's perspective. We need to make it personal. There's some really excellent research that demonstrates this, that when you tell a story about 80,000 people in a refugee camp, it immediately overwhelms people. But when you tell the story of Mogos Tweedy, who is the African who I interviewed and who's featured in this film, who tells you that for him mindfulness is medicine, then suddenly that story is just one person. So, from a journalistic perspective, and this is why I'm a journalist, it's about telling the stories that actually have a social impact.
6: I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely true. I think, you know, the, the ministers, the people who determine these things have to realise how big of an impact it has in, on a personal level. I think some things like what we're seeing in the uh, MRFF, the medical research feature, um, fund in Australia, part of what we're seeing where some of that funding is going is because it's very personal. So some of where the funding is being directed is directly as a result of you know, things that Greg Hunt um, has seen and that other people that are involved with that have seen. So I think that's one of the only ways that we can really sort of make those kinds of changes is to get to them and, and help them to be aware of the extent to which these things are impacting them and the people around them.
2: Never underestimate the power of a letter to your local MP and a call to talk back radio repeatedly.
7: I just wanted to mention Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the Vietnamese Buddhist that I always understood introduced mindfulness to the West. But in my experience, he was certainly... When you said at the very beginning of the panel, the separation between mindfulness and meditation, that they're actually not necessarily the same, but I just wanted your comments about his
3: contribution to this field. It was Nicholas's statement, but um, I'll take the question. Um, Absolutely. I don't think you can uh, in any way, shape, or form dismiss the contribution of Thich Nhat Hanh has to mindfulness in the West. But I, I do also want to think about, you know, it is that present moment mindfulness that he talks about. And again, sort of like, also discussing and opening up to the idea that there's just simply not that only the style of mindfulness, that there are other forms of it as well. But he really did sort of bring in the idea that, you know, as, as one of these books, Pieces in Every Step, you know, you really can look at, you know, the letting go of the stress and worry of the day, but simply by paying attention to this particular present moment. But you can also, um, at the same time, start to look at uprooting suffering before it even arises by, again, also examining mindfully the context in which your thoughts arise rather than actually just simply living with the content of the thoughts as well. So there are other Buddhist teachers who have had just as amazing impact but take that mindfulness to a different perspective uh, as well and I think that's just as important. We don't want a mindfulness where it acts just purely as a, uh, a sort of a, a band-aid to when stress and suffering arises, we also want a mindfulness that it helps us uproot it at its cause.
2: I think there's a gentleman in the second row here with a question.
5: My question is about the um, application of mindfulness as an integration with or a challenge to orthodox therapy. So out at Monash, Dr. Craig Hassett's mindfulness for med students is front and central. If you don't pass the course, you don't get your MBBS. But at University of Melbourne, Seligman's introduction of mindfulness into psychology, the MAP course, is ostracized out into the School of Education and the School of Health Science doesn't want to know about it.
6: So it's a bit of a political one, rather than a, a, a practitioner's one. But uh, I have some luminaries who might help me. I think forcing people to take mindfulness courses is dangerous. I think it's a bad idea. I don't, I don't like what they're doing at Monash. Um, I, I don't say that because I don't think it's helpful. I think it could be. But I think you can't mandate people to do this. You can't say you all have to do this course, and you all have to have a wonderful experience, and that I'm going to be a guardian or a gatekeeper for a medical degree because you you haven't completed this course uh, so th- that's that's my response to that to particularly what what's going to monash i don't i don't think it's as I said, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I think it's sort of forcing people to go through this is, is potentially not helpful. I think it, it can be, absolutely can be integrated with traditional therapies. I think most people assume that mindfulness um, is sort of only, or meditation is only an alternative to traditional therapies, um, but it can, it can be integrated. And in many circumstances, there are traditional meditation instructors, practitioners, um, Buddhists, monks, nuns, who would, would equally say to someone that came to them, you shouldn't be coming to me, you should be going to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, So there's certain circumstances in which the best course of action is the traditional course of action. Um, so I think you know, as to whether or not sort of this can be something that's more accessible, as to whether or not people have this as an option, I think that, that's a, another story. There are pressures, there are sort of people that are uncomfortable with this. Even though it is becoming more mainstream, I think the idea that someone might meditate instead of going to psychotherapy or meditate instead of taking you know, uh, Prozac or something like that, is still pretty out there for a lot of mainstream medical professionals. Um, and I, I think sort of that is something that does need to be addressed. We need to sort of recognize that. For some people, this, this could potentially work in conjunction with those things, or, or maybe in some cases, it could, it could replace it, um, could but not all. Could such a all.
2: move as that be aimed at changing the mindset of the medical students and the medical sector?
6: I mean, I think there's, there's certainly been efforts to sort of, you know, think about this in the context of med schools as a whole, and they're much more open to mindfulness and meditation, particularly in the US and the UK, um, than they have been historically. But I, I do think it is a, a bit of a worry when it, it's mandatory.
8: Other questions? Yep, there's one over here. Thank you for the uh, presentations, and thank you to Melbourne Uni Psych Department for putting this on. I trained originally as a psychologist and then ran away to India to study yoga and taught English to Buddhist monks. And so I had the great fortune of learning about mindfulness through the wisdom traditions 20 years ago. And in that 20 years in Australia, in the West, watching the psychologization, if that's a word, of mindfulness and the cognitization, another word I'm making up, of mindfulness in the West, I think is extremely concerning. That um, if we're not careful in the field of psychology, uh, I think we're dumbing down, um, uh, something that from its core comes from the wisdom tradition, has a sense of embodiment at its base and is much more than just about how we think. It's about who we are in the world and so I guess it's just a, uh, a comment I suppose and I'm interested about people's thoughts about how we don't lose um, the depth of mindfulness i think so many people want the outcome i want to be mindful but then i want to do the process i don't want to meditate i haven't got time hojun <laughs> oh, do you want to speak to that are you seeing something lost
2: in
3: the west uh, to a certain extent i'm just sort of sitting and going preach <laughs> 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 it really is a, a difficult thing for us and it is something that we are noticing uh, as the, the the buddhist teachers That, you know, mindfulness is sometimes devoid of, as I was saying earlier, uh, the support that the wisdom traditions actually bring to the practice, the the guidance that actually comes with it to to ensure that we're not actually, you know, um, leading people down the pitfalls or or leaving them unsupported in their practice. Um, you know, Mindfulness, it's one element and we have all these other different sort of practices that we engage to support mindfulness as well in order to ensure that you know, a person doesn't rely too much on whether it might be the analytical and they're not opening up their heart or that they're too soft and they're not actually looking at reality as it is. And so there is this wider birth within the wisdom traditions that actually looks at these meditation practices or mindfulness practices and say, how can I individualize this for this particular person and actually really sort of bring up the best in them and actually see what is required for them rather than this, here's this quid-cut approach, here's go off to this eight-week course, you'll be fine at the end of it. So, you know, the importance of a teacher uh, and a qualified teacher is, is huge in this area, a person who does sit with you does talk to you and actually on a one-on-one basis gets to know you and gets to know where is the pitfall in your practice, where is the pitfall in your maturation or your personality development, that sort of thing, and how can I actually help you with this. That's absolutely important. The tricky that we find with that though is when that situation gets abused unfortunately at times too, and we can't sort of like, you know, dismiss that part of it as well. But when it's operating as it should be, it is a beautiful experience. This is the most enriching experience that you can possibly have. In, uh, in regards to you and another person at times. I think I think it's wonderful, thank you very much for ma- mentioning it. I was just wondering if you could talk about the utility of mindfulness outside of uh, potential clinical outcome benefits. For instance, if, if you find that uh, the data show that it doesn't in fact improve clinical outcomes, would you still recommend mindfulness? And if so, why?
6: It's not that it doesn't show benefits, just that the evidence that we have is not as strong as most people have. So my perspective, so someone who's trained in in the U.S. as a clinical psychologist, if if a client was coming to me for help and said my issue is with mental health and I need a treatment that will help me deal with that, or if I was operating as a physician and someone came to me wanting help with a physical or medical condition, then no, um, I would not be comfortable saying to them, you know, you should do this. I just couldn't do that. That sort of you know, goes against evidence-based practice. Um, in terms of sort of other things, you know, I think there, there would be other circumstances. And I think if someone came to me for something else, if someone said to me, and this could happen in the context of psychotherapy, if someone came to me and said, I want to grow, I want to understand myself, I want something along that lines, as opposed to I want to deal better with my anxiety, my depression, my sadness, um, then I might be able to say, well, look, I think this process or this practice might offer you that, and, and you know, here's what that might look like. Uh, it's all about sort of, I think, having that discussion. But I think in the case where it's very clear why they're coming and that, that the thing they're coming for is a medical condition, if there isn't sufficient evidence that we can use it for that, then, then I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that.
7: I'd like to follow up on the two of the previous questions, one about integration of of meditation within a broader practice and the other is integration of meditation within the Western psychological landscape. Um, I have found after many, 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 many years of practising both separately <laughs> that bringing them together in, in among, with a sangha, with a community and, and good teachers and deep support is what has worked. For me um, and also what it's done is it's shaken up the whole foundation of of my life because it wasn't working like the systems that I was using to, to function in the world weren't working because often I I've, I've found in this in this culture we we're brought up to be a function of, of the system that I think is broken so what we're asking here I think if if we're asking for people to to meditate and be mindful, the enormity of what that challenges is huge. So I think it's needed, <laughs> but would you like to talk to that?
6: I just want to say one quick thing. Uh, I, I think goals are really important, and intentions are really important. And this, I think, was something that you know has come up earlier, or could have come up earlier, um, but. Why are people doing these practices? And, and this is sort of part, you know, to my answer to the previous question. You know, if someone's if someone's doing this for enlightenment versus well-being, that's a very different set of practices. Um, it it maybe not, um, but I think in a lot of cases it is. Uh, and so, you know, I think not ev- not everybody necessarily has the courage to become a monk. Um, not everybody necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> wants to become a psychologist, uh, those are not necessarily the same things. Um, can they be integrated? I think to some extent, you know, practicing mindfulness and meditation and doing psychotherapy can be integrated if if the goals align. Um, but sort of, you know, this is where I have issues when people send, um, you know, mental health clients or the clients off on three-month retreats or send them off, you know, Overseas and tell them to go to a somewhere in India or in in Tibet and say, you know You should go on a retreat there after you finish the MBSR course for eight weeks in psychotherapy And I'm I'm not I don't think that's a great idea Not everybody wants that nor nor is that necessarily going to help them So just to my point goals are really important.
5: Yeah, I'll just um, follow up with what your comment was which is um, that there is a role for the integration of psychotherapy and mindfulness that they can come together quite successfully. I, I tried psychotherapy for my insomnia and it, it didn't work. But I will say this as well, and this I guess was another profound moment that occurred during the filming um, with another refugee, and he said, "I've been to, I've seen a psychiatrist. The UN provided me a psychiatrist, um, and I've been to various." programs laughter therapy programs other things I've tried all these things but this this it was a, a nine week trauma-informed mindfulness program he said this is the first time that anybody has actually taught me how to help myself and I think I think that you know we can kind of get caught up a little bit in in some of this and 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 miss this thing that is it's it's met, it's training. It's coming to learn to understand how your mind works, and psychotherapy and psychiatry and all these un, other wonderful things are all so useful. And this is not it's not a one thing or another, but there is, as far as I'm aware, there is no technique that teaches you how to hear yourself think and how to notice what's going on, and that I think is where it is profound and very very difficult to capture on an MRI (laughs) it is
2: very very difficult to pin down a lot of things about this discussion any final thoughts
3: goals are terrible goals are just so not a good idea in practice (laughs) I'm saying that impartially because I just don't want to be this person who sits there and disagrees with him all the time Um, but someone has to (laughs) There is an element, though, that, you know, um, from a Buddhist perspective, that this constant striving that comes from mindfulness-based practice is actually counterproductive a little bit. From uh, a more psychological perspective, where Nixon is probably coming from, it's probably absolutely necessary, don't get me wrong. But just to also put it out there that um, at times when we're engaging in mindfulness-based practices, we are really looking at trying to gain an open-hearted acceptance of what this reality is that I'm currently experiencing and who I am in relation to that. Um, and that's not necessarily a goal. It's a heart opening that really sort of happens. It's not a striving towards. Um, so there is the flip side a little bit to what Nicholas just sort of said. But that's, again, looking at the differences between where he comes from and where I come from. And you know, I guess us trying to find that common ground, I have a huge amount of respect for this guy here. Um, and I just want to put that out there. Sometimes when you're engaged in these practices, this is about your heart, about your reality, about these two meeting in a very harmonious way.
2: I found one of the most fascinating things about this panel, the way lots of different traditions can come together in a really harmonious and both challenging way. And I want to thank you all very much for coming tonight. Please give them a big hand, our panel.
4: I brought a quote that I thought, to me it spoke about the practice, and it's by Dorothy Day. And she says, the greatest challenge of the day is how to bring about a revolution of the heart, a revolution which has to start with each one of us. I think that's the practice. It's unsettling, it's challenging, it's beautiful, it's complex, it's nuanced. But if we stay with it, or in my personal practice, it it has allowed me to kind of slowly take the mask off, the armor off, and reach out to other human beings that I know are in this. We're in this together. So thank you so much for being here.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of Event FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. Thanks go to Amy Bajaja, Sarah Wilson, Hojin Futen, Shannon Harvey, Josie Jimenez, Dr. Nicholas Van Dam, Adam Jaffrey, and to everyone involved in the Psych Talk series. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, the 21st of May, 2019 at Hoyts Melbourne Central. Thanks to the podcasting team, Arch Cuthbertson, Chris Hatzis and Sylvie Van Wall. Event FOMO is an original podcast series created by Dr. Andy Horvath for the University of Melbourne.